The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Ruth, chapter 1. It's a teeny tiny little book at the, towards the front of your Bible. And uh, it's a teeny tiny little book, a teeny tiny little story, but it has massive implications. Uh, just, it's, it's, uh, it, is, it is my favorite short story in all of the Bible. And this is not, probably not a typical uh, teaching focus or uh, approach for a marriage conference. Uh, normally in a marriage conference, we're going to tackle Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Ephesians 5. Um, we're going to, we've, we've uh, at times looked at the relationship between Israel and Yahweh. Um, so this is a narrative and a narrative is a story. And when you see narratives in scripture, typically there's two things going on. One, they're telling us the story, just which is great. We love stories. Don't you love stories? I, you ever notice how when a, when a person is communicating, teaching, lecturing, then when they tell a story, you tend to perk up? Is that true? It's true for most of us. We listen. We like, we, we like stories. And it's because it's woven into the fabric of human beings. We're created in the image of God. And God is a God of story. He's a God of of narrative and so anytime you read a narrative in scripture there's the story that's being told there's then also going to be some application from that story to the bigger narrative of scripture so when we uh we teach this to teenagers we explain to them there is the big story or what some bible scholars or theologians might call the meta-narrative the large narrative that begins with creation and ends with kingdom, eternal kingdom. So go to Genesis 1, end in Revelation 22. I think there's 22 chapters. Is that right? 21, 22? 22 chapters in Revelation. Um, So from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that's one big story, but it's made up of a ton of stories, isn't it? Made up of a whole lot of little stories. And so... uh, so when you tell the, the major story of Scripture, you're telling the story of redemption, or when you're reading it, you're reading the story of redemption, God saving man from the brokenness of sin. And then in the middle of that big story, you've got little stories along the way. And Ruth is one of those little stories, and some of the little stories are, are just full of implications for us. And so there's definitely uh, marriage application because... This story is a, it's, it's somewhat of a love story, but it's not primarily a love story. It's a gospel story. It's a story that points us to Jesus. So while it tells us a really cool romantic narrative, um, it's telling us a greater story, a bigger story. And um, most men, most of us men, I, we don't enjoy, most men don't enjoy romance movies, you know, just and most girls, most women don't enjoy Jason Bourne movies. Um, and we're just different like that, you know? 
It's always, finding a movie is always interesting, isn't it? You got to find that common ground. It's like, I want to see something get lit on fire, something blow up. I have people say, it's just so fake. And I'm like, exactly. I live in a real world. I would like to enter into a fake world once in a while where I can just disappear from reality, you know? Um, but, uh, but this, so this is a story that's, that's a powerful romance that points to the gospel. So, um, so we've already, Spencer read through the, the, the narrative earlier, but let me just now paraphrase it and give you an overview of what happens in, in chapter one. So it starts off by saying that it's in the days when the judges ruled. Now, we, here's what we know about the period of the judges. If you go back and you study the history of Israel, if you're a new Christian or you don't know much about the Bible, God created humanity. Humanity grew to many nations of people. When we say nations of people, we're talking about like, People, people from that, that moved around the earth, okay? So if we go back and we study humanity from the beginning, at the Tower of Babel, God confused languages. Prior to that, everybody spoke one language. And when that happened, people started to scatter according to their language. And so you had people literally scatter across the broad face of the earth. And then out of that, God raised up one nation from one family line or lineage. So there was this one family that came through a man called Abraham that could be traced all the way back to Noah and then be traced all the way back to Adam. And so throughout history, we can follow this one family line. Most family lines we can't follow. They fragment and they disappear and they, they go off in, in a direction that there's no way to trace. We can follow this one family line. So out of all the nations of the earth, God raises up this one family called the family of Abraham. And Abraham ends up passing away, and, and when he dies, his son has a couple of sons. One of them has a son, so Abraham's great-great-grandsons, there's 12 of them, and they form a nation. This is how it would happen in the olden days. A nation would be formed from a family. This is how it happened with Native American tribes, for instance. One group of people or one family group would form their own nation. And so this nation forms under uh, Abraham's grandson, whose name was Jacob, and his name was changed to Israel. And Israel becomes the father of a nation, and that nation is called the Israelites. To this day, we can trace that lineage down to the nation of Israel as we know it today. And so out of that nation of people, God made certain promises. In fact, Paul would tell the, the Jewish people, the Israelites are the Jews. And Paul would tell the Jewish people, and, and a distinction that might help you understand, what's the difference between Jews and Israelites? In ancient Israel, something that, that sort of helps me remember it is, I think of the Israelites as those people that were, had a national identity. And when we talk about Jews, we tend to talk more towards the religious affiliation or their belief system. And so Paul is writing to the Romans several thousand years after the time of Abraham. And he says, God gave to you people, you Jewish people, God gave promises, covenants, he gave scripture, he gave a law, he gave, he gave certain things that made you a very distinct nation. So out of all the nations of the earth, God raises up one nation that's called Israel. And then out of that nation, he gives a promise that there will come through that nation a savior for the world who will provide hope for all peoples, so that through the nation of Israel, this one man would be born, and he would be God in the flesh, and he would give salvation to all people. So all other nations could be blessed 
through this one nation called Israel. Well, there were within the covenant promises God made to Israel, there were certain things that were required of Israel. One was fidelity. Israel was to only worship Yahweh. They were to only worship God. They were not to worship the pagan gods of their neighbors. And they had many neighbors. And so you're not to worship the pagan gods of your neighbors. You're to worship Jesus. You're to worship Yahweh. You're to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're to worship the God who created all things. It's the same thing that God has called us to. You're to worship the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love God and no one like God and no one but God. And so God calls us into a relationship of fidelity. And so he did that with Israel. And so out of this relationship, relationship, you've got the nation of Israel and you've got Yahweh as their God. And so there's this parallel picture that is painted where God is like a husband and Israel is like his bride. And another uh, parallel is God is like the father and Israel is like the firstborn son, these really strong pictures. And so the nation of Israel, the problem was they could not stay faithful to Yahweh. And so they began to go after other gods. And when they would go after these other gods, God would give them over into slavery to those other gods and the people of those other gods. So at times, the nation of Israel would have freedom. They'd be worshiping God, following him, serving him, doing what he told them. At other times, they would turn their hearts towards pagan gods. When that would happen, God would give them to slavery to those pagan gods. And so there's a period of time when there was a, a lot of cycles of that, it's called the time of the judges. And what would happen is the nation of Israel would worship another God. God would give them in slavery to that people. Then God would raise up a judge or like a military deliverer. He would rally an army and deliver the people out of bondage. Then they'd be faithful to the Lord for a period of time. Then they would fall back into bondage. And so that's, that's what the period of the judges was. It's a very unique an important period in history. And so at the time of the judges, the sort of the, the like, like the character of people during the time of the judges is that the writer of the book of judges would say, would say it like this. At that time, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Sound familiar? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone defined what marriage was supposed to be. Everyone defined what sexuality was supposed to be, what worship was supposed to be, how we're supposed to spend our money, how we're supposed to do business. People were ruling themselves autonomously, but then for some reason, in a perverse way, they would follow after these other gods. So it was at that time. Now, that's the condition of humanity in the world at that time. At that same time, the text tells us that there was a great famine in a very specific place. The, spe the specific place was a place called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was sort of a, a, a really iconic uh, and monumental place in Israelite culture because a lot of prophecy surrounded Bethlehem. In fact, we know that several hundred years later, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem as a fulfillment of prophecy. So Bethlehem is at the center of a, of a, of a region or a, a clan in Israel called Judah. Judah was one of those 12 tribes. And at the center of Judah, which was a very powerful and influential tribe, was a place called Bethlehem. At the center of Bethlehem was a family of sort of elite socialites called the Ephrathites. And so they were sort of like leaders among the, uh, among the, the Bethlehemites. They were people who were people of influence, affluence. They were successful. They let, and so in that family of people in Bethlehem, there was a man named Elimelech. And the Bible tells us that the word Elimelech means my God is king. And so 
A lot of times in ancient Israel, and this is true to today in some cultures, uh, names have a lot of significance. And so a person's name would tell us a lot about that person. And so this man, Elimelech, was named, my God is king. And so the idea is, this is a family whose hearts are, are toward Yahweh. They want to worship the Lord. At a time when people are turning after other gods, here's a family that's going to turn towards the one true God. And so that, thus the name Elimelech. The, the, interestingly enough, the name Bethlehem, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. And so the city of Bethlehem, even by its name, was a reminder that God was giving abundance to his people and there was bounty there. But the text tells us there's something going on in Bethlehem. And what's going on in Bethlehem is that there was a great famine. Now, we know from the book of Judges that at the time of the Judges, famine would come as a result of God's judgment on his people. So when the people would go after other gods, God would bring judgment. Judgment would often come in the form of famine. And so the people would be hungry. They would be dependent on someone else to provide for them. And that's the situation that they find themselves in here. And so this man, Elimelech, says, he looks around and he says, okay, there's no food, there's no crops, my family is going to starve, I know what I'll do, I'll move to Moab. Now, here's what's significant about Moab. Moab was a, was a people group just outside of Judah. So they were a neighboring people group, and the Moabites had, had, had descended from, they were descendants of a man named Lot. You may remember Lot. Lot was uh, a relative of Abraham. So the Moabites were distant relatives to the Israelites. The problem is the Moabites descended out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you might remember that. And so the, that son, that boy was born out of incest and his name was Moab. And that became sort of a characteristic of that culture. It was a dark, perverse culture. It was not a place that you would go and raise a family. It was a very dark place. And so this man, Elimelech, whose name means my God is king, looks around in Bethlehem, the house of bread, sees that there is no bread, and travels with his family over to Moab. And we get the first foreshadowing of a very important biblical principle for you men. If you're a husband and you are a father, you are going to answer to God for how you lead your family. You're going to. It's very important to understand that. I will stand before, my sons and daughters will give an account to God for what they do with the gospel. And I will give an account for what I do with my sons and daughters. It's on me. This man, Elimelech, leaves with his family and travels to Moab. Travels to Moab. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, there's a famine in the land. Why not go to Moab? Well, because we know for a fact that, the, that it is much safer to be under the hand of God's judgment than to wiggle out from under it and be under the autonomy of your own freedom. It's safer under the hand of God's consequence and judgment than it will ever be in the land of Moab. It's safer to be in Bethlehem under God's judgment than it would be to be in Moab free from the judgment that was being meted out on Bethlehem. This is important. And it's important to understand it because the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, 1, that for those of us who are in Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation. So even when God brings discipline or judgment, he's not going to bring condemnation. God's not going to condemn me. What do we mean by condemnation? God's not going to send you to hell because you fail 
as a father or a mother or a husband or a wife. You make mistakes. God is not a God who's sort of waiting for you to screw up so he can thump you in the head. He's not, he's not waiting to bring condemnation and judgment on you. God is a God who has removed condemnation from his people, and he's laid that condemnation on Christ. It's the beauty of the, like, like the transfer of Jesus' righteousness to us is that our sin was transferred to Jesus and laid on him. And so what Elimelech is doing by going to Moab is he's saying, I don't trust God. I know better for me and my family. Listen, y'all, if I could just speak candidly, working in student ministry, I talk to, and and no no daddy's going to be perfect, and your kids will not be perfect, amen? They're going to screw up, mess up. You're going to want to wring their necks at times, especially when they're teenagers. There's times where you're going, they are thinking with the wrong parts of their body. Like, they're not thinking. They're just acting. It's just impulse, you know? And you're like, how oh, am I going to survive? We had, we had a, a session this afternoon. And probably, I don't know. A lot of y'all were there. Probably half of y'all were here. And, we, and I said, how many of you have teenagers? And it was like, like almost everybody in here was like, yes, that's why I'm here. Help, please, you know? Like, and, but I can tell you this. As a dad, if you will just love Jesus, let your kids see you read, let if the first thing they see in the morning is you at the kitchen table reading God's word, it will radically impact their lives. I, prom- I promise you. I promise you. They will not be perfect. They will mess up. They will, at some point, there will be a scandal where naked pictures are being sent around on phones and your child will be caught up in that. At some point, there will be a party where a bunch of people are drunk and others get arrested and your kid is there. At some point, you're going to be in a position where you're going, I've failed. I'm the worst parent ever. What do I do? But if you will stay true to God's word through the course of raising your children, Just be faithful to the Lord. I'm telling you, the promises of God are clear in Scripture. When they are old, they will not depart from that. Live today with a mindset of investing in your 50-year-old daughter or your 30-year-old daughter or your 25-year-old son. See, Elimelech thought about right here, right now, it is not lucrative to stay in Bethlehem. We will go to Moab. So he goes to Moab. When he gets to Moab, we're told that he has two sons. Their name are Malon and Chilion, which are really, it's a really odd play on words. It, literally, it's like, it like means sick and dying. It's like they named their kids after terminal diseases, you know. It's really strange. And so, <laughs> so not only is, uh, and, and, and I, don't, I don't know. I don't have an explanation for that. I, it's, it's, it's crazy. I've read nine commentaries on the book of Ruth. Why are these guys named this, you know? Why not like Frank and Pete, you know? Like what? Or good Jewish names, you know? Like, like Simon. And, uh, anyway, so, so he gets over there. And what happens is when he gets to Moab, there's this progression in the story where it says, in fact, the words that it used is it says, they went to sojourn in Moab. Then they remained and lived there for 10 years. So they, they went to sojourn. They went for a short stay. Just, we got to get out from under the famine. Let's go to Moab. They'll have food there. We can live on the outskirts. We won't dive into Moab, Moabite culture. We'll just survive. And then we'll come back to Bethlehem. Well, they go there, and then they linger. And the progression of words in the story is that they linger, they stay, they put down roots. And then what happens is this guy, Elimelech, give, finds Moabite wives for his sons. Now, why is that so bad? Well, it's bad because God said, don't, 
Don't marry non-Christians or don't marry people that don't hold to the same worship of Yahweh that you hold to. This would be like nowadays, we don't, like I'm not going to take, we don't take our sons and daughters and find, and, you know, we don't, you don't get online and look for a spouse for your son or daughter uh, from among the Muslim world. You know, I don't, I don't look for, I'm not looking for a good secularist, humanistic girl to marry my son. You know, like I'm trying to find someone who really hates everything that the gospel stands for. We don't do that, right? We pray that God would send a godly son or godly, I mean, a godly husband or godly wife for our son or daughter. And so what, what happens is this man goes that they have put down roots. There's a progression. And the second principle is this. First principle is as men, our decisions matter for our families. Second principle is this, the longer you linger in the world, the more comfortable it gets to live in the world, to think like the world, to pursue what the world pursues, and to conform to the world. And scripture says, don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the constant renewing of your mind. But that's what happens. They get over there and they settle down, they put down roots. And then here's what happens that's so tragic is that Elimelech dies. The father dies. Why did he leave? Bethlehem and go to Moab so that he wouldn't die. What happens when he gets to Moab? He dies. He dies. It's, it's just very ironic that he takes matters into his own hands, goes to Moab, creates some sort of financial stability for his kids, then he dies, then both of the boys die. It's a, it's a, it's a tragic story. So now we're left with this lady named Naomi. She's the wife of Elimelech and the mother of these two boys, and her name means uh, sweetheart or sweet, sweet person, like, like sweetheart is probably the best way to, to translate that. And so Naomi is now destitute, broken. She's impoverished. There's no way in Moab that an Israelite widow is going to survive, at least not well. But she knows that back in Bethlehem, God will provide for her because there are certain provisions within God's economy of life where widows and orphans are provided for. And so she also hears that in Bethlehem, you see there in the text that she also hears in Bethlehem that God has visited Bethlehem and now it rained and there's crops. In fact, the very last verse in chapter one says that she came into Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. For 10 years, there hadn't been a harvest. Now God has, has visited the people. He's lifted his hand of judgment and he's brought about blessing and grace. She says, you know what? I'm done in Moab. I'm going to Bethlehem. That is my people. That is my God. I will trust his provision. And so you see now Elimelech's widow, Naomi, choose to follow the Lord. So she leaves. She goes back. She's going to go back to her hometown. And one of her daughters-in-law, Ruth, insists on going with her. In fact, there's a conversion experience there in chapter one where Ruth says, your God is going to be my God. I know what the gods of Moab offer. I'm not worshiping them. I'm done with them. I want to follow your God. Where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God. Whatever happens to us, if we go to Bethlehem, I would rather put myself at the mercy of your God, whose name is Yahweh, than to stay in Moab. And we see this powerful conversion experience between Ruth and between Ruth and Naomi, we see this interaction that leads to Ruth's conversion to follow the Lord. And so they come back to Bethlehem. When they get to Bethlehem, it's the time of harvest. And when they show up, people are like, hey, it's Naomi. And they can hardly recognize her because she looks so rough, because she's been through such a terrible season of life. People are like, hey, who is that? That's Naomi. She's been gone 10 years. Man, she's changed a lot. 
If you, you ever see those before and after pictures of presidents before they go into office and after, I remember, uh, I, I remember um, the second Bush, Bush 43, and uh, Clinton, Bush 43, and Obama. Those are the ones that always, I, like they go in and they come out eight years later and they look like they aged about 24 years. You know, like their hair turns, the wrinkles cut, like the intensity, the stress, the pressure of, of life there. And so Naomi comes back, and I think there's literally a physical change. And so uh, people say, who is this? And she, they say, it's Naomi. And she said, don't call me Naomi. Don't call me sweetheart anymore. Call me Mara. It means bitter. I'm a bitter woman. I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm broken. I'm destitute. I just want to come back here because I know there's enough grace and provision that that i can die here among my people and so so she comes back into that uh into that that place that city that that community that uh i guess uh region of bethlehem and she's got ruth with her now there's there's a point here then at the end of the chapter where the story starts to turn up and when we go we flow into chapter two it says this now naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And we get introduced to this man named Boaz, who is going to become the type of Christ in the story. He's the, he's the person who sort of foreshadows and points to Jesus, who will ultimately be the Redeemer. But I want to give you a principle, or a couple of principles from chapter 1, a couple of observations and principles um, sort of to apply the first part of the story. And it's this, we've, we've, we've talked about that our decisions matter for our children and probably our children's children. So I want you to think about your marriage, and this is where I'm, I'm, it, it's not so much a sermon maybe as like a lesson, but I want you to think about this. The principles that you apply coming out of this weekend, the things that you heard last night in the sermon, the things that you heard this morning when John and Spicy shared, the interaction with Mitch and with the Jollies both on stage and you guys being able to ask questions. The, the, again, the, the practical, clear, biblical picture of covenant marriage that Mitch laid out for us so beautifully and clearly last night such a faithful handling of the scripture. Those of you that were in the session that I did this afternoon, there's been a lot of teaching. There's been a lot that we've received. And I want us to think about this, how we as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers, how we respond together to the word of God will have a direct and immediate implications for our sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters great-grandsons and great-granddaughters and 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 for generations to come like your decisions that i was talking to one of my daughters recently she's 10 she's in the fourth grade my youngest daughter she's 10 years old she's uh, i have to sometimes reprogram myself to think because we've moved on with our other kids and i gotta go back and go wait okay wait a minute let's see the first time we came through with a 10 year old how are we processing this and you try to, and she said, she comes home and we're doing this thing that we do in the evenings. I referenced it this afternoon. Like, Tell me a story. What's the drama of the day? And she and sometimes it's funny drama, but sometimes it's serious drama. And she said, Daddy, I'm really, I'm really sad because my friend, and she, she told me the little girl's name and she said, and I know the family. And she said, her daddy left. He's not going to live with them anymore. And I said, why is that? And she said, well, he said that he's not going to live with them anymore uh, because uh, he needs his space. 
What does that mean, Daddy? And I said, it means that your friend's daddy is a very selfish individual. It means he cares more about himself than he cares about your friend. So you should be a good friend for her because she's got a daddy that loves himself more than he loves her. He doesn't understand sacrificial love, but God your father does understand sacrificial love. It was a great teaching opportunity, but it was a sobering reminder for me that when I act selfishly, it affects the people that God has entrusted me with. So we got to be on the same page. Husbands and wives, and we talked about this this afternoon, man, you have got to be unified as husband and wife. Even if you're out of the child-rearing stage. I, I, I talked about this this morning, that like my grandparents, who were awesome people, and I loved them both dearly, but what a missed opportunity that we didn't watch them grow old loving each other well and loving Jesus together. There's an opportunity for you, even if your kids are grown and gone and you don't have, you've kind of lost that potential. It, when a man and a woman love each other and are unified in their faithfulness to the gospel, there, there, there will be a multiplied impact on the people that you're around. Immediately with your family, peripherally with those around you in your church and your community. It's powerful. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it's incredible. When, when one of two people, when one spouse is faithfully serving the Lord and the other is not, it's like that one spouse is wounded in combat, is playing with a cast or an injury, if that makes sense. You see a kid, you see a kid out there playing you know, on, the, on the soccer field and, and he's having to limp because he's got a pulled hamstring, but we need him in the game because we don't have enough. He's playing injured. When you see a husband and a wife and one of them's faithfully serving Jesus and the other one's not, what you're left with is a wounded person trying to make a gospel impact. When two people in marriage are unified for the sake of the gospel, advancing together, what happens is gospel impact broadens and spreads. But if we pull that in, for those of us that are still in the season of life where we're raising children, here's the reality is that when you love each other well, your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren will be greatly and positively impacted by that. Positively impacted. So it's an incredible thing to see. It's a beautiful thing to see. That's why, that's why, it's, that's why we're so drawn to listening to John and Spicy this morning. We don't get victory stories in our society. People don't faithfully love each other 53 years later. And we're drawn to that. What if everybody in here, that became our story, that when we're five and six decades into marriage, if God tarries and lets us live that long, we're, we're having that kind of an impact. So, so the, the principle and application is that our decisions in the here and now matter and they affect everyone in our immediate circle and even those beyond it. It's very important. But, after, but I, I want to kind of key in on, on, on two major doctrines in the story. And the first one is this. There's, a, there's something that's introduced in the story when Naomi tells Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, to go back to Moab. She says, go back and may the favor of the Lord rest on you. May the mercy and kindness of the Lord go with you. And it's a biblical, it's a biblical principle and idea that we see, th see throughout the Old Testament where God promises that he will, he will stay his hand of loving kindness with his people. So as a child of God, here's what you can know. When you're dealing with a rebellious teenager, when you're dealing with an unfaithful spouse, 
When you're dealing with the baggage and bondage of abuse that you experienced as a child, when you're dealing, ladies, with a husband who will not lead and do what God's called him to do, he refuses to do it by his inactivity, here's what you can know. The mercies of the Lord are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. The loving kindness of the Lord never leaves, never leaves. And this idea gets introduced in the story where Naomi in her darkest hour recognizes and, and pleads this for Ruth. She says, go home and may that loving kindness of the Lord, may that ongoing mercy of the Lord stay with you and cover you and go with you even in her time of brokenness. And so throughout the story, we'll see this constant and continual uh, like idea that the favor of the Lord, the loving kindness of the Lord, the compassion of the Lord. Uh, just as we mentioned earlier, Paul says that, the, that for those of us who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. The scripture will also teach this, and David would write about this in the Psalms, that God is very slow to anger with his sons and daughters. He's slow to wrath with his sons and daughters. He's slow to chasten them. He's slow to discipline them. He will discipline, but one of the beauties, like one of the, we shared this with students this past summer. We're talking about the, the way God disciplines. One of the ways God disciplines is through conviction of spirit. One of the ways you can test your own salvation is, do I live with the deep conviction that abides with me? God convicts us of our sin, and so God convicts and convicts and convicts and convicts, and sometimes God chastens and punishes and deals with his sons and daughters, but, but we can know this, when he does that, it is an act of love and loving kindness and mercy that God does that. And so we see this beautiful picture introduced to us in the story of the loving kindness of the Lord that will carry throughout the story. We won't get to do the whole story of the book of Ruth. You'll have to go read the rest when you get home. Unless you want to come back to Red Oak Church tomorrow night, we're going to finish it tomorrow night at Red Oak Church. You're welcome to stay around and stay in a cabin for an extra night. There you go. There's an offer. If you've got babysitting squared away till Monday, we'd love to have you. But we're not going to feed you um, tomorrow after breakfast, okay? So you get breakfast, then you're on your own, all right? We, so we got two, two really good restaurants in town, uh, and we can all squeeze into them, I'm certain. Um, We've got like a, a Mexican restaurant that's like American Mexican food and a Mexican restaurant that's like legit Mexican Mexican food. Both are good. I'm sure we can get into both those restaurants tomorrow. <laughs> so we'll stick around and we'll finish the story tomorrow night. But here's, here's what the other thing we're going to see throughout the course of this story is we're going to see a doctrine emerge. And this is where we'll finish tonight. And let me give you a, a real clear picture and application of this. We will see the doctrine of the sovereignty of God really strong in this story. This is a word that you hear thrown around in church a lot, sovereignty. Another word would be providence, probably a word we're more familiar with, the providence of the Lord. And when we talk about the sovereignty of God, when we talk about the providence of the Lord, what we're talking about is that God can do and will do as he pleases, and ultimately all things fit into his plans and purposes. Now, this can, mess, this can kind of mess with your view of God because we live in a broken world. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes would question this and he'd say, God, I need some answers here. It seems like wicked people tend to advance. Dishonest people tend to get rich. When I practice like honesty and good business principles, it seems like my competitors get ahead and I fall behind. How is that? 
You ever feel like that? Seems like that sometimes. Talking to one of my daughters one time, she was taking a college class, and she said, yeah, man, we had to come in class, and she said, we, we, I was talking to her on the phone, she's off at school, she's like, hey, come into class, and, and, the, and we got to take our quiz, and the, and the professor says, okay, here's the quiz. Did you read 100% every word of the reading assignment? She said, Daddy, we had like 320 pages we had to read the night before. She said, I read for four hours straight, and I read about 85% of it. And she said, I wrote, no. She said, my roommates, one was sitting here and a suite mate was sitting here. We got the same class together. And I know they didn't read any of it. And they put yes. And they got a 100. She said, what am I supposed to do? I was like, well, don't ask me or your mama. We would have both put yes. <laughs> I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> yep, check. Oh, this is an easy one. Only 100 I would have got the whole semester, you know. <laughs> but when we started talking, I was like, look, man, this is the way it works. Like, if you're going to do the right thing, sometimes it's going to feel like everything's against you. Why? Because when we, you know how we talk about the world? You're like, oh, man, that's the world. That's the world. We live in the world. The world we live in, the world is out to get you. When we talk about, for the Christian we're fighting against the world sometimes. That idea of the world is the global system that is both cosmic, spiritual, and physical that is pushing back against the plan of salvation that God has for humanity. The world's fighting it, like bucking it and fighting it tooth and nail every step of the way. The world does not want the gospel to advance. This is why Jesus says in John 15 and John 16 and John 17, the world's going to hate you because it hates me and you represent me. You are in me and I am in you. And as we abide together, the world is going to hate you because it hates me. And so sometimes it feels like, man, I'm getting behind. I'm like, I can't, I can't, I feel like it's like if I do the right thing, I just lose. And, and the sovereignty of God plays into that with this promise that there is coming a day when God is going to put all things right. All injustices will be made right. Justice will prevail. All wrongs will be righted. All pain will be healed and done away with and every tear will be wiped from our eyes. In fact, there is a scene in the book of Revelation where there's a scroll that's rolled up so tightly that no one can open this scroll and bring justice to a fallen humanity. And the lamb steps forward and is able to open the scroll because he has the authority to do so. And the sovereignty of God says that there is coming a day where the, the foster care need will be eradicated. There's coming a day where there will be no opioid problem. There's coming a day where daddies will no longer abandon their children. There's coming a day where there will be no wars and famines and disease, no cancer, no AIDS, no Alzheimer's. There's coming a day where the wolf will not knock on your door. There's coming a day where you won't have credit card debt and where you won't have to worry about how you're going to pay the bills. There's coming a day where we will be citizens in a kingdom where King Jesus sits on a throne, rules and reigns. There's no need for a sun to shine because the radiant glory of Jesus, the Son of God, would drown that brightness out. That's coming. And so everything's going to be made right. Naomi's learning this. But right now, she's not head above water seeing that reality. The waves are crashing in on her. Like the psalmist says, I feel like the waves and the ramparts just 
hammer me and I can't get, I can't get a breath. That's where she's at in life. Sometimes that's where we're going to live. The sovereignty of God is easy to talk about on a good day. It's easy to talk about when there's money in the bank, nobody's in the hospital, all of our kids are serving Jesus, we don't have to worry about it. To say, yeah, I believe in the sovereign God is sovereign, he's in control. It is hard to grab hold of that doctrine, submit to it, and worship God like Job did when his wife was dead, I mean when his ten kids were dead and his wife was telling him to curse God and die, and he says, if he slays me, I will still worship and praise him. It's hard to worship God on that day. It's hard. But here's the hope that we have. There's a famine in Bethlehem one day, and there's a bountiful harvest the next. And the sovereignty of God is equally intact in both of those situations. I'll tell you a story. I've got a sister who's here, who I love very much, and... Uh, and and, and <clears throat> when I got a crazy, I got a crazy story. Like my family story is just kind of nuts. When I was a kid, my dad was a pastor. You guys know what IFB is? Independent Fundamental Baptist. You ever heard of that? You ain't lived till you've been in the IFB circle now. I'm gonna tell you what now. That's where like if your hair's too long, there's sin in your heart if you're a dude. You know, like a girl, if anything above mid-calf is shown, you are a harlot. I mean, like, it's like, I have the independent fundamental Baptist. It's like really, really legalistic. And so I grew up in this really strict setting. And then I remember when I got, when in my teenage years, my dad was unfaithful and he ended up leaving my mom, walking away. And so my dad went into this crazy realm of like drugs and alcohol. And he went kind of back to what he knew before he was a Christian. So I kind of have, literally my life is in like two weird compartments when I, when I look back. It was this childhood thing where we couldn't, like we couldn't listen. The music that we sing here would be considered sinful. I know that probably seems crazy to some of you if you've never been in that world. But like anything with a drum beat or like electric, synthesized, anything like that. It was the 80s, man. Big hair. Like Europe and Bon Jovi. And so I remember I had these clear cassette tapes. The clear ones were the good ones, remember? Those were the good ones. And I would put... I would put, uh, but it was weird. You, we were, I don't want to get on a rant here. You would, we could listen to Southern gospel as if like that was anointed, sanctified music. So you could listen to like country Christian basically. But I remember I had, uh, I had put a Kingsman Quartet sticker on a tape and it was the, it was, it was a Metallica and Justice for All tape. <laughs> Abby walking through the house. What you listen to? And so, anyway, grow up in that. So my, my, my mom and dad split up. It's kind of crazy. And I remember it was real devastating. I remember uh, I'd left home and I went back. My brother was... Uh, my, um, let's see, I went with my, my parents were trying to reconcile things. My dad had been unfaithful and he ended up overdosing. It was, it was a mess. Um, I went back to support my brother for his football games his, his senior year. I had moved out and gone away. And I would drive back and go watch him play football. And my dad came to the game and we walked in as a family, very broken and dysfunctional. I remember people yelling stuff and throwing stuff at, at like, it's just a mockery in that community. So that was that. And I remember just like, as a, I, was, I was a brand new Christian because I grew up in that, but was very rebellious towards it. When I left home, got out of the house, I came to faith in Jesus. 
And I remember thinking, what is the good in this? Like, what? I was so confused about it all. And so my parents eventually split up. My mom um, started to date and see a man named Steve Parker. Now, Steve Parker is, uh, is my stepdad, and he's the grandfather to my children. And so, uh, because they've been married for uh, a long time now. But I remember when they started to see each other, Something had happened in Steve Parker's life, and if I could just explain it, and you'll have to listen close and to the names because you'll get lost and confused because it's a crazy story. But Steve Parker was married to a woman named Gail, okay, Steve and Gail. Gail had a sister. I'm not even going to bring the name in because there's t- too many names you get confused. Gail had a sister. That sister had two children, Raquel and Justin. Their mother was murdered by their father, Okay. And then their father went to prison. All right. Now, Gail, their biological aunt, gets custody of them. Tracking? Those kids were four and one and a half at the time. Raquel and Justin were four and one and a half at the time. I heard the story. I, was, I, was, I hadn't been gone from home long, and, and, but it was, it was, you know, everybody knew the story. So then Gail leaves her husband, Steve. Their marriage disintegrates. She sort of goes off the deep end, leaves. Steve now takes these two children who he has no biological connection to. Everybody still tracking? Fights for custody, wins the battle, and is now raising these two children as his son and daughter. My mom marries Steve Parker. And now my mom and Steve Parker raise Raquel and Justin as their parents, neither one with any biological connection to them. So Raquel grows up. She's my little sister. When she was 18 years old, she left home, moved in with me and Little. And she's like, my close, the, of all my sisters, I'm probably the one I'm closest to. Well, not probably, definitely. The one I'm closest to. And she moves here and she marries this idiot, <laughs> complete idiot, like absolute idiot of a human but I condoned it I was down with it it was fine like it seemed like a good idea at the time you know you ever do that you're like what was I thinking Uh, so but so but in all seriousness Raquel married Zach Mabry who is the worship pastor here at Snowbird all right so Zach's my brother-in-law okay now here's what's awesome Zach and Raquel, Zach and Rocky have four kids. They have Parker, Sam, Jackson, and Ella. They all call me Uncle Brody. My kids have a grandfather they call Pap, who they have no biological connection to. And it is, and it is the happiest, most joyful family. And when we're on, and last night my son is playing football on a Friday night, and Pap is sitting behind me, shaking me, yelling, slapping me on the head because that's his grandson out there and he's cheering for him and he's screaming and he's excited and in the spring he drives my son to these combines and one day prospect camps. They're like thick as thieves. They are buddies. Pap and Tuck are buddies and Jack, little Jackson when he sees me tomorrow he'll say Uncle Brody and he'll come running and he'll jump and he won't let go and you know what? We have the beauty of the sovereignty of God that out of terrible brokenness has woven a family together that's way bigger than the screw-ups of a few people, including murderers and adulterers back through the line. You know why? Because the sovereignty of God is greater than the sinfulness of man. 
And what we're learning in this story is that God makes things new. He's making things new in an eternal kingdom, but he's making things new like right now in your life. It's an ongoing work that God's doing. And I hope that wherever you are in your mind, I know this is not a traditional, typical marriage retreat sermon, but I want you to understand that you are two people living under the hand of a sovereign God, and your decisions matter, and when you do mess up, know that God is bigger than that mess up. And he's still writing a bigger story that will even include your mess up and will even give value, will assign redemption to your mess up because we serve a sovereign God. In fact, we'll see tomorrow morning, eventually, Naomi changes her name back to Naomi because she sees the goodness of the Lord. She leans on it. She rests in it. She sees redemption. This is a story of redemption. We talk about that a lot. And what we mean by redemption is God brings value to the story. God brings wonder to the story. And I want us to just believe that in our marriages, regardless of where you're at, what your situation is, that God would bring value and wonder and beauty to your story. That'll matter 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 500 years from now. Amen? I'll pray and we'll close our time together with a song or two. God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you for your loving kindness, your mercy and loving kindness. I thank you that you're making all things new. I thank you that you are greater than our failures or our calamity. I thank you that in the brokenness of this life, you still have purpose and value and a plan for redemption. I thank you for the patience of these people to listen to a long-winded preacher. I thank you for the, the time you've given us to be separated from our day-to-day life and to, have a, to just have a break. I think you have uh, had the opportunity to shake hands and hug necks with people that I haven't seen in a long time and you've brought us all here this weekend. I pray that you would bring value to what's been done here. I pray that we would be husbands and wives that love one another and love you and serve you and that out of that faithfulness to you as you're faithful to us, we would see a, a, an impact that, that reaches far beyond our immediate family, our homes, even our generation. Love you and thank you for loving us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.